0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the new Rich by 36 podcast. We have a very special episode for you today, Thursday, October 1st, 2020. I interviewed Eric Mason yesterday. He's an economist and the chief financial officer at the city of Quincy, Massachusetts. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about the powers of the Federal Reserve. I think there's something that... uh, A lot of investors don't uh, take into account. If you look at where where we are with the virus, unemployment rate, the amount of leverage that we've taken on to get out of this, where stocks are valued, uh, there's a lot of risk, but people don't talk about what is going on with the Federal Reserve. So I wanted to get an expert on to discuss that. And Eric crushes it. In between the time that we recorded this podcast as Stock Bites and uh, the time that I'm releasing this, we went through a. um, you know, whatever the word I'm looking for is, Uh, we changed our name, you know, a branding change, right? We want to bring everything under the rich by 36 umbrella. So, uh, stock bites has been retired. This is now the rich by 36 podcast. And if you head to rich by 36.com, uh, you'll see we're, we're trying to create a community and we are creating a community, uh, that helps people understand money, young people helping other young people, understand money. We have a stock newsletter called the Beastly that as of Tuesday of this week was up 39% over the S&P 500 since we started the publication in the middle of August. We have a blog, which is really, you know, longer form uh, written pieces, just about all things related to to finance. Some of the stuff that we have up there right now, what is technical analysis? The importance of an economic moat and leadership the election in the market what do we know for certain you know and that's a fun piece where i dive into what exactly is the electoral college and what are some of the kind of the outlier outcomes from the election that could really affect the market uh, the middle side of money and the decline of the us dollar so there's some fun kind of outside of the box pieces there and, and we also have a something that we call the money talks blogcast where we're Really focusing on issues that are affecting young people's finances, student loan debt, budgeting, uh, buying a new car. Uh, The the one that we're going to run next week is about understanding, you know, coming to grips with the importance of money in our society. So there's some fun educational stuff on there. And again, we we, our our newsletter is crushing it. We're it's not for penny stocks cryptos or or day traders that we want to get our money into quality companies that are profitable that also have a nice technical setup and it's working so far so without any further ado uh, let's get to this interview here with eric mason a big thank you to him he crushed it and i'm looking forward to having him back on the show let's get it (laughs) All right, thanks for joining me on Stock Bites, Eric. Uh, we've been talking a lot about. I, I, I'll just give some context for this conversation. Um, there's there's a coronavirus, right? You have unemployment, um, I think today, where it was at, in 2008 or 2009 for the great financial crisis. We've issued, you know, where our economy is super levered. Um, you know, all, you got all these issues going on with the work from home. Uh, trade like for commercial real estate what's happening there and there's just and stocks are historically expensive um so there's for new investors for any investor really there's a lot of things that they could there's a lot of things that they can point to and say i don't want to put my money in the market right now but the one thing that i think people miss is the federal reserve and they don't i don't think a lot of people understand their role and how powerful they are and 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 supporting markets and dictating interest rates and all that stuff and what that means for the investors so i was i'm very glad that you joined me today i wanted to ask you some questions about the fed and and uh, hopefully we can educate some people here so uh, let's get it kicked off with this what is the feds the federal reserves stated goal and role in the american economic system
1: yeah. So the Federal Reserve, which was founded uh, in 1914, around there, I think that's its first year of actual like open market operations. But what the Federal Reserve function as, functions as, for in the most fundamental way, is a national bank. Um, it's not even America's first national bank. We actually, uh, When the country started, we did have a national bank that uh, ceased operations in 1836 um, after Nicholas Biddle, the former president of the national bank, got into a um, back and forth with Andrew Jackson. It's very ironic because Andrew Jackson is very anti-paper uh, money, which is essentially all what the Federal Reserve deals with is uh, is nominal money. And now he's on a $20 bill. <laughs> um, so with the Federal Reserve, what its goal, its role, what it does is um, any central bank, which is to provide stability. There is um, how it does that and what people's pin- opinions on its, the how the policies react doesn't change what its goal is. And that is to provide macroeconomic stability. And it does that through two major operations, setting the federal fund rate, which is the rate in which banks in the Federal Reserve lend money to one another who, who are FDIC accredited. Um, and what's probably more more for the average investor, somebody who's not who's keeping their money in a checking account or savings account, or sometimes we refer to those in economics as M1 uh, accounts, is uh, federal open market their, uh, operations, um, which is when they buy and sell notes Um, usually bonds, uh, but they can sell short-term notes. Uh, Some of the CARES Act actually got the Federal Reserve more involved in these notes or short-term borrowing mechanisms um, to manipulate the monetary base and to help develop and incentivize through some processes that we call quantitative easing and some other less uh, hot-button issues um, or uh, hot-button terms to provide stability and to avoid what we call liquidity traps in economics, which is a sudden shortfall of cash in the economy that can constrain market growth. Um, they also, based upon all of those factors, they do set inflation target rates. And I know uh, we'll probably jump in, uh, George, a little later in this on kind of what those long-term goals are, but every central bank, whether it's the US central bank, the Japanese central bank, the German central bank, it's concerned with inflation. Um, And we just had in the 100 plus year of the history of Federal Reserve for the first time, they have a stated inflation goal. And that is really going to affect investors, especially investors who think right now stocks are expensive. Stated inflationary goals are really going to become an issue in the long term.
0: Tell me more about that. I I know that we've been targeting 2% inflation, right, for several years. And now they recently released that they're, I don't know if it's going to be range bound, if that's the right word, but they're going to take it on an aggregate so it can be, it can run over 2% for a while if it gets the, the aggregate inflation up to 2% over a certain time period. So what is, t- tell me a little bit more about that and what that means for, uh, for stocks.
1: Well, I mean, you hit it right on the George, uh, exactly the type of mechanisms. What, so inflation is a, inflation isn't necessary. And actually, even, even to some of the more Austrians, and I consider myself Austrian in nature, it might be markets, Um Inflation is a good thing. Hyperinflation is a bad thing. But very few things, especially in a modern banking system, are as bad as deflation. So I just want to pre, I just want to pretense that before I kind of start uh, kicking <laughs> kicking infl- inflation as a negative thing in terms of somebody who's trying to climb into the market right now. So what what the, there's always been about two percent inflationary target, and uh there's many different ways to measure inflation. I always prefer inflation that correlates to you know the average person walking down the street because we can a- economics and economists can get really we can get really detailed on what's inflation well at the end of the day what inflation is And i love that the federal reserve and the bls do a good job of this is market basket goods it's like hey you go to the store and you need to fill up your grocery cart and you buy the same if you're like me you buy the same groceries every week yep. how can i expect that to change over time that same logic can be applied to stocks it can be applied to the stock market if i want to buy a stock at a certain price in the market and that industry hasn't changed or sorry that company hasn't materially changed why is its price going up and that's because of inflation which is the devaluing of a dollar or any currency um so they've always targeted about two percent inflation rate and it's it's historically been not always two percent it's i think the five-year run average is probably around like high one high one percent maybe like 1.8 1.9 i'm um, doing really really good t- uh, economic boom periods, your inflation goes through the roof. Uh, inflation is, a, is, is usually a byproduct in our system of economic growth. Um, I always give the example, like if you, where do you make more money being a dry cleaner in a very, very rich metropolitan city or, in, you know, a poor rural community, obviously the, all the goods cost the same to be a dry cleaner, all the training costs the same to be a dry cleaner, but you can charge more in say Silicon Valley because you know, the incomes are higher. That's a form of inflation. Um, for the first time, the Fed actually has a stated goal to achieve that, and inflation is actually kind of hard to 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 dictate, um, especially when you have an economy that really stresses uh, kind of the ability to freely exchange, like a stock market. The stock market's a free market if there's ever been one. Um, you there is no price discrimination. There is no boundaries stopping you from just buying opening an account i mean within five clicks you can have an e-trade account or or scott trader and name any company and uh you can be buying and selling and trading You can even trade options you can it it really is an amazing system and you a stock goes up 10 percent you get 10 percent if you pick that stock stock goes down 10 percent you go down 10 percent um it's there's no safety net and that it's really kind of a beautiful system but how that becomes to affect inflation, especially how you mentioned in the federal reserves, inflation targets begin to affect that average Joe investors, prices are gonna rise. That's the very nature. A 2% inflation rate means that your, your, your market aggregate appreciation is going up 2%. So you, if you think prices are expensive now, I mean, just they're going to grow at 2%. And the interesting part is that whether they hit that inflation number or not, is not necessarily irrelevant, but it's, at, it, it's expected. When we talk about the Fisher equation, which is how we come up with a normal interest rate in economics, is the real interest rate plus expected inflation. Not inflation, expected inflation. So if the Fed says, hey, we're going up 2%, all those investors, all those market makers are charting their uh, their uh, courses at that 2% curve. So you're better off being at that curve at the at the lower side than waiting and trying to jump on at the top point.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. The... <laughs> the so, the, the Fisher rate, real interest rate plus expected inflation, doesn't that give us, um, doesn't that feed into the discount rate that we use to value stocks and the discount, you know, and use in like discounted cash flow uh, scenarios where, look, like, you know, we've had flat yield curves before. Uh, you know, I think in the early 2000s, you had a flat yield curve, but cash in the 10 year treasury were yielding 4%, right? So, the discount rate that you're using. To value stocks was much higher, and you know we're at a, a very high PE ratio right now in the stock market. But it, I think, because we're—I don't know how I'm going to get my head around this—because we're the interest rates are so low, we do have a relatively low target inflation. The discount rate that we're using to to back into the valuation, what is fair value of a stock, is is much lower, which supports higher valuation, right?
1: A One hundred percent correct. I mean, that is exactly from a mechanical standpoint what's happening right now. I mean, to the T. And,
0: and why why is the why do we have a stated inflation target now? Why is that so important for the Fed to to come out and say? I
1: think it creates. St- Either, again, this starts to get a little bit of uh, a, little polit- a little more political than I usually go and stuff like this, but I think what it does is it gives the appearance of stability. That one, when you have that, you know, that Fisher effect, the Fisher equation, you know that one of those inputs is going to be fixed. And it inherently provides stability in a very, very unstable market right now. I mean, the market's going up, but if you look at the VIX index, our measure of, vol- of volatility, it's through the roof. I mean, we've never had this sustained period of uh, volatility. So the, the Fed coming out and saying, hey, we're going to target 2% is their way of kind of dampering that volatility or their attempt to stamp, to dampen this volatility. And I think um, it's not uncommon. Other national banks do this. Germany's national bank, if you read their mission statement, explicitly says to control and manage inflation. They don't even talk about like monetary policy. it obviously Germany, historically, I mean, the, the Weimar Republic's hyperinflation um, I think it's still, even though that was a hundred years ago, I think it's still at the forefront of their mind. So what yeah. hyperinflation can cause.
0: I think a, another piece of this is we are a highly levered economy where the national debt just keeps expanding and expanding. The There's a couple of ways out of that. You know, you either stop your spending and, and raise taxes uh, or you declare bankruptcy or you, you target inflation. So, you know, the, the inflation is really a benefit for the borrower, not the lender, because it eats away at your purchasing power. So I think that's another piece of it. Uh, what, what has changed about, you know, you, you mentioned that open market uh, operations started in 1914. How has that morphed? What's changed about the what they were doing Fifty to hundred years ago, versus what the Fed is doing in, in terms of open market operations today.
1: Yeah, uh, back hundred years ago, the they, I don't believe they even called them uh, open market operations, they, but they certainly were. They, they they were, but they were de minimis. Um, they were, and we, we still had a hard uh, hard currency, a SM backed currency. Um, since we transitioned to a fiat currency, it's actually it's much harder to create stable long-term inflation with a fiat currency than it is with uh, a commodity currency. It's quite easy to create inflation or monetary currency; you just base your currency. <laughs> it's, it's, fairly, it's fairly direct. Um, this is why fiat currencies are actually inherent. people think of because the currency is not backed anything; it's, it's unstable. It's not necessarily true. There's a lot of f- the U.S. Uh, currency is very is very stable. So is the, the British pound. Um, some, one of the things they try and do through uh, these open market operations is they increase the monetary base. But one of the big, one hardest things to do is, that, and what we found this during quantitative easing in 2008, is expanding the monetary base with the type of economy we have doesn't necessarily translate into increased M1, which is savings and checking accounts, or M2s, which is other you know liquid accounts that the average citizen has, doesn't necessarily increase those uh materially or significantly increase those accounts, which therefore it's not available to purchase and therefore doesn't become inflation. Um, the only real way for a government using a fiat currency to guarantee inflation is to do something called seniorage, and that's when you print money to pay your bills. And that's usually what you, you saw in Venezuela, um, and in Zimbabwe, uh, um, that's what you saw in the Weimar Republic, and you, that's when we see hyperinflation. Uh, the U.S. government doesn't do that. The US government Let me stop you there.
0: Let me stop you there. What's the difference between printing money to pay your bills and this digital money creation that we've had since March, where the Fed's balance sheet has expanded, I think three point two trillion dollars, and we're we're bailing out all the cruise lines and the air, you know, airplanes or you air carriers. It sounds a lot like we're printing money to pay the bills. It's
1: that is. A very astute observation that is that's when uh, we start talking about some of the uh, real definitions of what senior rich is I I think when we look at a textbook definition of senior rich it doesn't do it justice Um, so what actually the difference is if you take the money directly from say the treasury and go and pay Joe's painting to paint something um, you've devalued the dollar because what you're doing is there's nothing there's no economic growth that backs that So by borrowing money and then using that digital the Fed sheet to increase the amount, what you're increasing is not you're not necessarily changing in the immediate term. You're right in the long term. The right long term is very similar. In the short term, which that's really hyperinflation, is more of a short is short term issue than a long term issue. Hyperinflation it just isn't sustainable long term. Um, In the long run, though, um, you are the actions that we're doing right now will spur inflation. Uh, but in the short term, which is what we're hoping co- the COVID crisis is, these actions can, pre- can prevent economic degradation. The, what, what has to happen, your monetary base should expand the same amount your economy does. That way you keep everything fixed. The way the Fed, I believe, is looking at it is, hey, the economy is recessing because of COVID. By doing and then matched with like the CARES Act and such, that we're going to stimulate the economy. We have to do that through some of these monetary practices. Some of these monetary practices are going to be taken back immediately afterwards. we are going to reduce the Fed sheet so that long-term Fed sheet doesn't have time to bleed in throughout the whole entire economy. One of the other issues we have that's related to that, which is seldom talked about, but I think is very important to stock investors and especially stock investors who are, who are you know, everybody enter the market, is money velocity, which is the idea of how fast money moves to the economy. hundred years ago, money didn't move that fast to the economy. Now, money's instant. Um, in theory, if you have one dollar that can move at an infinite speed, your monetary base only needs to be one dollar. This is often what this is um, not exactly what Milton Friedman won his Nobel Prize for, but it's very, very close to it. Um, so, as we have more digital assets and money can be moved so quickly, um, the Fed balance sheet doesn't hold as much weight because whether it's three trillion or seven trillion, if you meet if you if you're below that carrying capacity and it's it's non-rival, um, you, the money's available. Um, and I think that's why we haven't seen bank runs. That's why I don't think bank runs are something that will exist in the United States ever again, because the money's there. You get the money. I think people are more are going to be more concerned with inflation than access.
0: How long-term is long-term, right? Because we did, that was the idea for QE1 where, look, we need to, we need to expand the balance sheet now to to get us out of this recession or that was turning into a depression. And then we, sometime down the road, we can come back and shrink the balance sheet. Well, they started trying to do that. I think a couple of times in the market, there was what the, I don't know if this is correct, but there was the taper tantrum. And I think at the end of last year, they also started selling securities back into the market to try to reduce their balance sheet. And at the end of 2018, you had basically a 20% drop in the market. So the, 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 these open market operations Uh, are designed to to put liquidity into the market and to convey uh, confidence and a sense of uh, continuity. But the flip side of the coin is when they, and if they ever do decide to start paring down the balance sheet, that's going to convey whatever the other side of that coin is where, you know, market participants are taking that uh, poorly and the, and the market, starts to fold right so how do they and and this is also another thing i think this is the first time we've ever done quantitative easing you know 2008 it had never been that that sort of support had never been given before so there's not really like a playbook that you can like milton friedman never talked about how to unwind this massive amount of central bank debt so how do you how can they do that um yeah.
1: Quantitative easing has taken a lot of weird forms. Um, so the first, the quantitative easing, and I mean, just in a nutshell, quantitative easing is the, uh, is basically the increasing of the monetary base to provide liquidity and to, um, help create, um, the reduction of risk in a market either by increasing inflation or by creating access, uh, access to funds. That's what, um, that's really what quantitative easing value is, is that you're not going to run out of money. Uh, whether, how much that money is worth is a different question. And, um, but what's funny is so quantitative easing has essentially existed since mercantilism, which is like the, the economic system that was formed in Italy in the uh, like late 1400s. It's the idea of like you need to accumulate as much money as possible. Once nations started doing themselves as the ability to accumulate money and have their own monetary base, um, you can start to have the concept of how do you create more trade and economy. And one of the ways you create more trade is by having more access to funds, whether those funds are in liquidity or in actual transferable capital. Um, we live in a modern day where that line is very blurred. What is liquidity and what is actual capital? Like, I give you twelve hundred dollars, even if it I give like everybody in the country twelve hundred dollars if we the CARES Act, yeah, you're gonna have, so that's gonna spur inflation. It absolutely is, but you can still use that the twelve hundred dollars has buying power. That does, that twelve hundred dollars have the same buying power that if you just you yourself just had twelve hundred dollars. Um, no, but it's probably relatively immaterial. Uh, it's like prices suddenly skyrocketing. Quantitative easing um, becomes very problematic um, when we begin to have these transactionless, a bit of a price stickiness, or the ability to change prices really doesn't have a transactional cost. Like if it used to be, we call the menu cost in economics. Like how much does it cost to reprint the menu? Um, well, if suddenly you can just change everything digitally, the va- change prices up digitally snappy fingers, that really can neutralize the effect of having more cash in the economy. Um, it does still helps with the stability of having access to liquidity and having access to the ability to continue to trade, but it allows the, the producer um, to increase the prices to net out that change. And that's really, um, we always talk about the CPI as we use as an in inflation, the consumer price index we use as inflation. We have the other side of it that, Fred, that the Federal Reserve Economic Database, FRED, monitors, which is the PPI, the Producer Price Index, and those are the Balancing Act. So PPI is usually way, way, way historically stickier than inflation has been. But now that they can change their costs so efficiently, it makes quantitative easing a little more difficult. Now, in terms of U.S. history, in terms of history of the Fed, one of the best times of quantitative easing we've ever seen is uh, during the during World War II, so we have like if you you ever know uh numericists that they they talk about rice paper money or they talk about uh steel pennies and stuff like that that's a form of quantitative easing. it just can't be done as quickly as the digital quantitative easing which is, i love that term by the way is that the digital side of it is that you're literally just somebody sitting at a sitting at a table can hit a few buttons on their keyboard and increase the monetary supply. what we're seeing is um that just because you can do that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to economic growth and Part of, I think, the struggles as an economist and the struggle that we're facing now is where is that line? Where is that line where you can have effective market or policy? Where can it be using quantitative easing? So it's kind of what's going on in Japan. You talk about the over leverage. So Japan has 300% uh, debt to GDP ratio. And they're still experiencing kind of like good economic growth. And Japan's a very stable, very intensified economy. I don't know if that's the poster child to go after. I think us having, reserve, having the currency of the world makes it harder for us. And that's why I think, you know, we won't see negative interest rates. I just, I, I think it's too detrimental to the economy. I know the, uh, Switzerland has done it, but they're not a heavily, their currency isn't heavily exchanged. Um, but no, in terms of kind of that, what the Fed's, how do you unwind it? And that's your right. No, the Fed doesn't talk about that. If there's modern monetary policy, modern monetary theory, triple, triple M and stuff like that, they have their theories, and they're good ideas. They're they're great economists, but it's a difficult question to ask ourselves: Is how do we reverse back? Um, is it austerity? Is it liquid austerity? Um, both things of that are gonna recess the stock market. I mean, that people are people are emotion, make emotional decisions. When you suddenly hear there's gonna be less money. You're gonna hoard more money, which is gonna have a, a I want to say a positive feed cycle, It's almost a negative feed cycle in that case. So. It's not a doom and gloom. We're, we're very lucky to be in a position where we have these tools. But how do we unuse these tools? How do we stitch back up the patient after surgery is over? Is a question that we're going to have to figure out as we go forward. Uh, but I think with targeted inflation goals and with the current Fed policies, especially in the medium to short term, you know, I, I, I think you're going to see prices rise. Um, so I know I kind of threw a lot there, but uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. The the other piece of this is you don't want to be the guy. Jay Powell doesn't want to be the guy who history writes about as the person who crashed the economy and kicked off the next great recession. And whoever's after him, there's this there's also this human element where the elected officials, the Fed officials, they don't want to go down in history as the asshole. (laughs) And so you mentioned it. You're just going to you got to keep kicking the can down the road in the hopes that one day there is a time where you can unwind it. Um, a couple, just uh, two follow-ups and then we'll get you out of here. Um, is there, the, the Fed is supposed to be a political. Uh, it was, I'm just remembering some headlines from a couple of years ago. I think that president Trump had threatened to fire Jay Powell. If, if he continued selling securities into the market. So, is that, is, that, is that line blurrier now? Is there more of a, a kind of a, a meshing between politics and the, the Federal Reserve?
1: Yes, I think, I, George, I, I, think, I think there is. Um, uh, I don't know. It's,
0: what's, the, joke. what's the effect of that? Um,
1: you know, there's, I used to, you know, maybe when I was younger, more naive, I used to think uh, economics and politics were separate. But now I think that I used to think uh, economics was an unwilling partner of politics. And as I've gotten older, I've realized politics is an an unwilling partner of economics. Um, It is certainly politicized. Um, It's something called the fourth branch of government. So it's political just by nature. I mean, just by appointment cycle, it's political. Um, But the thing about the economy is economy doesn't care about politics. You can economy is like like, uh, winds in the desert. You can try and build the biggest walls you want, but eventually they'll overcome it. Um, so it is political. But I think I like Powell a lot. I like Bialin. I like Bloomberg. I like Greenspan. I like they're all fantastic economists. Um, really smart individuals. She she's brilliant. They're the smartest people
0: who probably collect a check from the government that is yeah. paid for the taxpayer. I think they are. But so the and, and there's not look if if biden gets elected or if there's a democrat in office the fed the fed's mandate doesn't change it's not like if a democrat comes in they're going to go all right we want to have five percent inflation now because they are technically and indep- not technically they're supposed to be independent and look you may get a president that tries to browbeat them for some sort of short-term political gain but you know, that's why you have the uh, term limits and all that sort of stuff so that's, that's another thing that I've heard a lot is the, the election. People are worried, but um, the, the Fed, is, it, it, it's going to continue to operate no matter who's in office. You also mentioned uh, you don't think that the dollar will will be replaced as the world's reserve currency. Is that just because there's no other option?
1: It, I, I think sometimes we don't, um, we don't have a proper appreciation. I include myself in this for how stable the U.S. dollar is historically. I mean, considering that we are the world, pow- the world power, I mean, you go back to every time there's been a world power, their currency has been incredibly unstable. I mean, even Rome dealt with really bad inflation. I mean, that's what the third century crisis really was, which is like, they oh, we devalued silver to nothing. So like, oh, can't run our country, can't run this empire. Um, but I think if you look at how people trade, when, when, Fran- when Germany needs to borrow money from China, they're not trading yons to euros. They're trading yarns to dollars to euros it's a it's you'll get in some of um, some developing african nations i mean having u.s dollars in the bank is better than having physical gold in the bank that's how stable how much trust is in the u.s dollar i think especially you know you look at everybody wants to talk about the elephant in the room about hey you know china owns a lot of our debt china doesn't own the most of our debt they're not even in second place the u.s citizen owns the most u.s debt the japan owns the most u.s debt and you could make an argument that the reason Japan's economy is so stable is because they own 20% of the U.S. debt hold. Um, the U.S. dollar is strong. It's always been strong. And there's a – really seems to be one of our best foreign, one of our best foreign policy measures is keeping the U.S. dollar strong. Um, and it has been historically. Yeah, it's not as strong as the pound, but the pound's too heavy. <laughs> no pun intended. The pound's just – it's too big of a currency to advantages. disadvantages. Um, it's yeah. – I, I really – I'm, I'm – I'm an optimistic guy by nature. I feel a lot of economists are, but I, I don't think we appreciate how awesome our dollar is and how it's going to stay the reserve currency of the world because we don't we don't intentionally devalue it like like China does with the yuan, and we don't want to make it so expensive it's unusable like the pound. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just, we, we're a nice, moderate dollar.
0: Could you imagine? So I think it was 1932 or 33, where uh, FDR took us basically said all right all u.s citizens we need all your gold right now and here's paper money in exchange yeah. could you imagine the shitstorm that would happen <laughs> if somebody tried to do that today <laughs> I mean, she's so right
1: about that i mean good thing we did it and i'm not the, i'm far from the biggest fdr fan but uh it, it worked i mean i don't yeah. i mean gold, gold gold experiences inflation i mean Gold has the having gold backed currencies crippled this a lot of countries in Europe. I mean, the reason Europe went to mercantilism was because, like, once you discovered the new world, you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's not a fixed supply of gold. Uh, that's that's inflation, it just crippled it. I mean, the idea that these hard currencies are like immovable and they don't experience inflation is insane. <laughs> they, they clearly do if you find more of it or you find a different use for it. Why is silver's value climbed? Because <laughs> you need it in cell phones. Who would have guessed 30 years ago they'd be like, hey, you know all that pretty stuff you put on your rings and stuff? Yeah, we're going to need that to build our... We're going to need that to wire our cell phones. <laughs> so that, that creates inflationary factors. I mean,
0: so, yeah. uh, nick Nickels being used in lithium batteries and... Right.
1: Cobalt mines popping up everywhere you can find. Okay, yeah. You can find cobalt.
0: <laughs> well, Eric, do you have... Uh, did, did I miss anything? Was, was there any particular point that you'd like to share that we didn't talk about?
1: No, George, I mean, you know, you, listen to the other podcast, you you absolutely cover everything. And I think we can, we can spend five hours, probably five weeks yeah.
0: talking about this. Um, well, we'll make you, thought, uh, that'll, we'll make you come back on again. You know, we'll, we'll leave you wanting a little more here. Eric, yeah. would you like to plug anything? Do you have anything that you'd like, uh, where can our listeners find you? Do you, do you put out articles and, and that sort of stuff? Or, I
1: mean, I'm, uh, uh, I'm
0: I'm always just I'm
1: always around on LinkedIn. That's my that's my main place to find me and see my ramps as LinkedIn. But otherwise than that, now I'm yeah. a pretty uh, pretty low key guy on on uh, on any digital media.
0: Okay. Eric Mason, E R I C M A S O N, Chief yes, Financial sir. Officer at the City of Quincy, Massachusetts. And you missed you missed the layup. You you used the word wicked today. <laughs> And you met, like, come on, man, you got to, you got to really lean on that word. If you're going to use that in an interview, you got to really, you know, met, wit, I can't even do it. I suck at yeah. a Boston accent, but that, that would be my know, only critique. critique for you. <laughs> I can't, you, know, you can't take it out of me. All right. Thanks, Eric.
1: George, good talk to you, sir.